0: What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one ewtn
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986
2: What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest?
3: What's stopping you? You, you, you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Glad that you're with us today. Uh, this program is just for you if you're a non-Catholic uh, or if you've got some questions about the Catholic faith. In any event, uh, the program is here for you. We do it every weekday at this time. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener, Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Or Facebook. We are streaming there on both platforms right now. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. And then uh, Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Um, I am doing just fine. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Interesting email we received overnight from Kathy. And Kathy says, Dr. Anders, I am a cradle Catholic. Recently, I heard a commentary about the Blessed Mother upon her presentation in the temple as a young girl. That commentary indicated that when she was presented, she was consecrated a virgin. Well, if that's true, how was she later betrothed to St. Joseph if she was, at that time, consecrated a virgin? a virgin Again, thanks Kathy.
4: Yeah, Kathy, I appreciate the question. So the dogma of the Church is that Mary was perpetually a virgin, and by by design and by intent, and she intended to remain that way, Yeah, um, uh, and that she was married to Joseph. So uh, uh, I don't think it's necessary to hold that there was a public consecration of her virginity in the temple uh, in order to affirm the Catholic dogma that she was perpetually a virgin. And the Church's position has always been that she married St. Joseph with his understanding that it would be an unusual marriage, to say the least, yeah. and that it would not be—they wouldn't enjoy normal conjugal li- conjugal living, and he would be her protector and the protector of the Holy Family, but that they would not consummate the marriage.
2: Kathy, thanks so much for your email. Here's one from, uh, looks like, Eugene in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He says, uh, Hello, Dr. Anders. I, too, am a Catholic convert who was raised Protestant. At Mass, after the Our Father prayer, we stop after saying, Deliver us from evil. Then the priest says his part. We all conclude with for the kingdom of power and the glory etc. This feels very protestant to me. Can you explain where or when or why it is said this way? Thanks. I learned so much from your show and again that's Eugene in Kalamazoo. Um yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So in in in
4: transmitting copies of the Bible down through the ages, mm-hmm. you know, you start out say with what St My- Matthew wrote. We don't actually have the original copy that Matthew put papyrus to, you know, to mm-hmm. um, Stylists. What we have are copies of that, and the, uh, they're by and large similar. I mean, they're they're they are pretty much what Matthew wrote. Mm-hmm. But we do we can detect some variations in manuscripts, and so they, they typically clump into regions. So manuscripts that you find more on this side of the empire, mm-hmm. you might have you know, a few variants here and there. Manuscripts on the other side of the empire have maybe a few variants here and there. And so there's diverse manuscript traditions that give different versions of the Lord's Prayer. And there is a version of the Lord's Prayer that has the longer ending. Mm -hmm. For Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And there's Mm -hmm. a version that has the shorter ending. And, uh, uh, you know, they're all part of the tradition, but they're not necessarily all original. Okay. The shorter version is probably more likely to be what Christ said. And and that one is actually the one that has historically been passed down for use in the daily life of Catholics. Sure. But the addition is not unedifying and is found in biblical manuscripts that are, you know, produced from the heart of the Catholic faith and yeah. so there's nothing objectionable about their theological content.
2: Eugene, thanks for your email. Here's one from Joey in Steubenville who says There seems to be two versions of Christ's return. Most people think of Revelation, quote, where nation will rise against nation. The other version is that people were just going about their business, marrying, planting, etc., and the end comes as a surprise like a thief, Matthew 24. I prefer the quiet ending because I believe the end will come when the body of Christ is complete. What does Dr. Anders say?
4: Yep, um, he'll come back one day. And there's going to be a lot of hoopla between now and then. Yeah. And when he comes, it'll be a surprise. I don't think the surprise uh, makes it impossible for there to be wars and rumors of wars. I do think, I mean, Scripture does seem to suggest that there's going to be, uh, there'll be uh, international conflict, there'll be military conflict, but, I mean, there's always conflict. Oh, yeah. I mean, you may be beating your sword into a plowshare in one part of the earth and they're going to be stocking nuclear weapons in another part. Yeah. And there's always there's always conflict. So the way I look at it is the conditions are presently have have been fulfilled for Christ's return. And so There's no point in trying to read the tea leaves of of contemporary history to pinpoint when Jesus is going to come back. He's
2: going to come back when he's going to come back, and we'll know it when it happens. All right, Joey, thanks so much for your email. Here's an anonymous one. A couple of weeks ago, I was camping in Arches National Park, came across this possible analogy for purgatory and why it's important. It's as if heaven was a drive through beautiful and breathtaking scenery, but you have a dirty windshield on your car. It helps to stop before entering so you can clean it off. Hope that tickles your funny bone.
4: I think that's a fantastic analogy, and it goes to the language of Jesus who talks about seeing God as the consequence of having purified your heart. So the the lack of purity interferes with the vision of God and so cleaning up the vision enables us to see God. I think that's a beautiful metaphor.
2: Good job. Appreciate that. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at EWTN.com. We try to tackle a few emails every day on our program, and then once a month or so, we'll do a mailbag, and we'll uh, clean out everything we've received over the last couple of weeks. Again, CTC at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll talk with Tom in Wisconsin, also John in Tampa, Daniel in Akron, Les in Cincinnati, Michelle in Bloomington, Indiana. That means one line is open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to Communion on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. We do have one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Let me tell you right now uh, something beautiful available for you from EWTN's religious catalog. It's Behold the Lamb of God framed art. Now this is a detail from a larger painting called Adoration of the Shepherds, created originally by Italian artist Lorenzo Lotto. It shows an up-close look at the infant Jesus reaching out and touching a lamb held close to him by one of the shepherds. This fine art print, framed in a decorative wood frame with a gold finish, it is ready to hang on your wall. It's about 10 by 12. It includes a sawtooth hanger, which makes it very simple. It's available right now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Tom, a first-time caller in Wisconsin, listening on iHeartRadio. Hello, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir?
5: Well, I had a question. I had uh, I, I received a Catholic news agency update, uh, what's going on in the news and the Vatican, and uh, Pope Francis commented in that article that he does not approve of same-sex unions, but he's uh, inclined to uh, same-sex uh, blessings. Now, it would be one or the other, if there were one or the other partner, would ask for a blessing. So I'm in in, in, uh, in a quandary here. If one or more of these uh, members of this same-sex couple asks for a blessing, and he gives it to them, and then they move on, and, and then in a short time after they get married, they can say, oh, we have a blessing from Pope Francis, and now we're a couple married.
4: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the most specific answer to this question that the Pope has given uh, came in his response to some recent questions put to him by a group of cardinals. The questions are called dubia. They're theological questions that cardinals are allowed to put to the Church and bishops are allowed to put to get authoritative answers. And they asked this very question. And the, the Pope, writing in his own name, by his own hand, said... The Church has a very clear conception of marriage, an exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally open to the begetting of children. Only this union is called a marriage. Um, He says, for this reason, the Church avoids any kind of rite or sacramental that could contradict this conviction and give the impression that something that is not marriage is recognized as marriage. And I'm not going to read the rest of the quotation, but you, you get the substance of the thing, that the Pope was pretty darn clear that... Marriage is the indissoluble union of a man and a woman for the sake of raising a family. Nothing else can be called a marriage other than that, nor can the Church engage in any kind of sacramental or quasi-sacramental action that would imply otherwise. And so reading that just straightforward, the way it's written, I would take that to mean that if a a homosexual couple uh, purported to marry one another and came to a Catholic priest and said, would you please bless our quote-unquote marriage— The priest would be bound to decline. He would have to say no. Um, If one or other member of that coupling, however, asked for some other kind of blessing, a blessing that did not imply approval of the Union as such, then the Pope advocates pastoral prudence. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's giving carte blanche permission. He's advocating pastoral prudence. And let me throw you out a hypothetical scenario. I'm not advocating this position. I'm throwing it out as something that a priest might do in good conscience. Okay. okay? I'm not saying that he should. I'm just saying he might. Um, let's say you have a cohabitating homosexual couple that uh, that is on the margins of the Church in its life, and and one of the other members has you know suddenly— sort of rediscovered his Catholic heritage or her Catholic heritage and has a desire to come back to the church and is making inroads in that direction, but needs a lot of instruction, has a lot of misunderstandings, and these are just tentative steps, And, and comes to the priest and says, would you come bless my house? Now, I know priests that would say no, but I know priests that would say yes on the grounds that I'm not being asked to bless the Union as such, I, I, maybe this is a bridge mm-hmm. that would be an opening for this person to feel like they're not utterly rejected by the Church. Yeah. It might be an opening for me to to give deeper instruction and greater formation later on. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that I think the Pope has in mind, but it would always be subject to a pastoral to a prudent, prudential discernment. So let me give you a, a, a parallel example. I, I know a priest, I'm friends with the priest who who went through a period of regularly blessing the homes of uh, not homosexual couples, but heterosexual couples in irregular unions, those that were not invalid marriages, for this very reason, in the hopes that it could lead to you know, greater incorporation into the life of the faith and, and ultimately into the regularization of their marriages. Mm-hmm. He did it for a while and then concluded that it had the opposite effect, that the couples involved— took that to mean that he approved of their form of union mm. and wasn't trying to get them to change their life, at which point he stopped doing it. But that's a very local decision yeah. made by one pastor in one concrete circumstance. I think that's the kind of reasoning that the Pope has in mind. Look at the context, look at the people involved, look at the circumstance, make a prudent pastoral judgment about what do I need to do, what's the what's the most efficient Course of action here to help bring this person more fully into line with the with the church's
2: moral catechesis. Tom, is that helpful for you today?
5: I just had one. I just want to add. I uh, might add a caveat to that. Would this be a bridge for that couple?
4: Well, uh, okay. So that that's entirely. I mean, that would be contextual, uh, d- contextually determined, right? I mean, for one couple, it might be a bridge. For another, not right. That's why.
2: Pastoral decisions are always prudential judgments based on the people involved. Sure. Appreciate that, Tom. Thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. One line open, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Tampa now and talk with John, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, John. What's on your mind today, sir?
0: Hello, Tom. Hello, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. i um, calling because um, an interaction with my neighbor. Um, my neighbor and his wife are non-Catholic. I brought them to Mass twice, and uh, they've gone up during Communion uh, to receive the blessing, you know, with their arms folded. Right. Uh, but recently they've asked, why can't we receive Communion? And I've attempted to explain to the best of my ability, it's, you know, understanding the value, that what you have there, the true presence of Jesus Christ, and then also warnings about receiving it unworthily. Mm -hmm. Um, These are totally unsatisfactory um, to my neighbor, and you know, for instance, the retort is, well, my wife is a good person, why can't the priest just ask, are, are you worthy to receive? And after more discussion, I still not satisfied I, I can I help I you
4: I can help you I really pre- this is a very common question I believe I can help you So first of all belief in the real presence is not a sufficient grounds for receiving holy communion I'm a catholic I believe in the real presence there are times when I should refrain from communion even though I believe in the real presence Let me give you one What if I just ate a giant cheeseless pizza five minutes before Mass, right? <laughs> According to the Church's law, I should refrain from communion. Yeah. doesn't matter that I believe in the real presence. I'm not properly disposed to receive communion because I'm still picking cheeseless te- pizza <laughs> out of my teeth, right? Which is not how you're supposed to go to communion. No, no. Right? So just believing the real presence isn't enough, right? Um, uh, to receive communion in the Catholic Church means several things. One thing that it means is... This is a symbolic act whereby we signal our agreement that this is the body of Christ, and I'm not talking about the sacramental body, but the corporate, the ecclesial body that Jesus founded. Mm -hmm. The the Eucharist is the occasion for the corporate body of Christ, the Church, to come together in its public expression. And I I am signaling my adherence to that Church, and by implication, all that it teaches. So someone who goes to the to communion of the Catholic Church is, is, is basically saying, I believe that this is the church founded by Jesus, and I believe everything that it teaches. Now, most Protestants do not think that's what communion means. They think communion means some kind of private interior fellowship with Jesus, their friend, irrespective of ecclesial, ecc- ecclesial questions. But that's just not the Catholic doctrine of communion. Mm-hmm. Communion is the right of the Church's unity that expresses our avowed, explicit agreement with Catholic teaching. So since that that's what it means in this context, in the context of the Catholic Mass, going to communion means I agree with Catholic teaching and I'm a member of the Catholic Church. A non-Catholic person who receives communion in that context is bearing false witness against themselves and to their neighbor. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so you don't want to do that. I mean, in, unless you actually, in, unless you do believe that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus and you affirm all that it teaches, uh, in, in which case, getting you into communion would be the right thing to do. Now, um, even if you did believe all that, you still can't go until the Church admits you. And this is going to get to the second question. You talked about worthiness to receive communion, and your neighbor's response was, well, we're worthy, we're worthy. Again, this, this betrays a, a very subjectivist view of how you evaluate that question. I mean, imagine if I went to, if I got accused of a crime, and I went and bore witness in the court case, and I said, well, I, I absolve myself, I'm innocent. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that's not how it works, right? No, you know? no. <laughs> and, and in the Church's view, see, again, Protestants don't typically think this way. Um, the Church is a public institution. It's not just a private spiritual entity that lives in my heart. It's a public institution uh, that has real authority real jurisdiction and th- the church has the has the right to determine a person's worthiness it's an objective finding of fact right like the way a jury would decide all right it's not a private thing it's a public thing and now the the criteria that the church will use may be divulged privately particularly in the confessional Mm-hmm. Right? And so what kind of criteria is going to be used? Well, you know, the, the, the priest is going to ask the penitent, are you contrite, are you sorry for your sins? And if the penitent says yes, then the priest will absolve the penitent, making them fit in a very—even very, though it happens as a private act, it makes them publicly fit to receive the sacraments. Okay, And so the priest is operating not just as a minister of Christ's mercy, but as also a, 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 a representative of the church tribunal, um, a juridical function— that has, that has public relevance, namely your right to receive the sacraments. So you can't do that in your own case. You, you can't just declare, I'm worthy. The, the Church has to declare you worthy, because Christ gave that jurisdiction to the Church. So if you believe the Catholic faith, if you believe in the real presence, if you believe this is the body of Christ sacramentally and mystically, and you want to be a member of that and you agree with everything the Church teaches, you still need the Church to, to declare that you are safe to go to communion. And, of course, we know what Paul says about going to communion if you're not properly disposed. He says it's, it's uh, physically and, and spiritually dangerous to do so. Absolutely. So, again, many Protestants would feel like you're passing judgment against me and saying I'm not worthy. That is absolutely not what the Church is doing. That is not what Catholics are doing. We are doing the opposite. We are saying the only people in this room that the Church has the right to judge are Catholics. And so some Catholics will be judged unworthy of going to communion, and some Catholics will be judged worthy of going to communion. We judge no Protestants. We don't pass judgment on any one of them. Because we don't pass judgment, we can't form the judgment that they're worthy.
2: Makes sense to me. Appreciate that, John. We hope that's helpful for you and for your neighbors. Uh, maybe that'll, uh, you know, give you a little bit of ammo next time that the subject comes up. Thanks so much for your call. Here is Daniel now in Akron listening on YouTube this afternoon. Daniel, what's on your mind today, sir?
5: Hey, Tom. Hey, Dr. Anders. Appreciate what you guys do. Thank you. My question is, uh, or an explanation uh, that I would like to have is, what is the purpose of penance and the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and how does that fit in, or how does how do indulgence fit in with that as well?
4: Great question. I love it. Thank you so much. So penance is an essential part of the Sacrament of Penance. Um, However, the validity of the absolution does not depend on your completing the penance. So when the priest says the words, I absolve you, you are absolved right then and there, whether or not you complete your penance it's not like if he says go say ten hail marys and you walk out the door and you trip and fall and break your head open and die and you didn't say your ten hail marys that you weren't absolved no no you were absolved when he said i absolve you uh, but it's still an integral part of the act of of the of the sacrament of of, uh, of uh, reconciliation and the the purpose of the penance is to make an act of reparation to god for the offense against god's honor uh, it's also edifying and hopefully will purify you to some extent, if you say it with the proper intention, uh, of your attachment to sin. Now, the connection to purgatory is very well made. So purgatory is absolutely an extension of the Church's doctrine of penance, namely that if we don't do adequate penance in this life, uh, we can uh, we can complete that penance in purgatory. Now, I think he asked about rec- about indulgences, too, did yes, he not? Yes, yes, okay. yes. So in antiquity, say the 3rd century in North Africa, in Carthage, uh, there were people who were... Uh, subjected to very long public penances, like being barred from communion for, say, 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. really, really heavy-duty stuff mm-hmm. uh, as a result of having apostatized during the Decian persecution. And at that time, some of those people who were doing penance went to the confessors, that is, Christians who did not cave under persecution and were languishing in uh, in North African jails, and said, hey, would you do some of this penance for me? Could we let some of your jail time count towards my having completed my 20-year penance. And, uh, and many of those confessors said, sure, I'd be happy to suffer on your behalf, and here I'll write you out a writ of indulgence, and you can take it to the bishop and let him know that I'm doing your penance for you vicariously. And so they did. It they, they didn't come from the church hierarchy, it came from the faithful. And they went to Bishop Cyprian and said, can we do this? He said, yeah, we can do that. And thus was born the practice of indulgences, which is namely uh, appealing to the merits of the saints uh, uh, in uh, in your on your behalf to
2: complete the temporal punishment due to some. Daniel, thanks for your call. In a moment, less in Cincinnati, Michelle in Bloomington, Frank in Denver. Hopefully, lots more on this edition of Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion on this Thursday afternoon. Glad you're with us here on EWTN radio. Our phone number 833 288 EWTN if you're just joining us 833 833- 288-3986. Hey, our friends at Domestic Church Media in New Jersey need to hear from you next week. They're going to be airing their end-of-year Radiothon next Tuesday through Thursday there in New Jersey. If you're listening in Asbury Park, Freehold, Trenton, Cape May, Hamilton, or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Back to it right now, and uh, let's go to Les in Cincinnati. Speaking of Catholic radio stations, Les is listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Les, what's on your mind today, sir?
5: Hi, thanks for taking my uh, call today. We really like you guys. Thank you. Um, A Catholic skeptic uh, person I know spoke against the papacy by saying that uh, that, uh, Peter, St. Peter, was at the Council of uh, Jerusalem, but Really, I think he said it was James was the boss of it, led it, and uh, he announced the results of it. And that shows that uh, Peter really wasn't the the head and the first pope in section. I wonder if you can clarify.
4: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So Acts chapter 15, which gives an account of the Council of Jerusalem, definitely shows James giving the summing up. James gives the summing up. Yeah. Um, he does so after Peter has given definitive testimony. And so it was Peter's opinion that prevailed, and against a controversy, I might add. Uh, so there's nothing in the text of Acts 15 that suggests that James had some sort of Primacy over the council, just you know, he just he had a kind of uh, master of ceremonies, kind of MC role. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, um, but I'd say the text in itself is ambiguous, so I don't think you could derive that much either way on the question of who had the primacy in Jerusalem based on the account in Acts fifteen. What what we do know historically f- from the New Testament and outside the New Testament is that. In early Christianity, there was a major, there were major controversies about theology. Major controversies, and the one in Acts fifteen about the the question of Gentile inclusion in the Mosaic Law was the biggie. That was the big controversy. And we know from St. Paul's epistles that there was a party from Jerusalem that was associated with James that that took the position that would ultimately be ruled uh, inappropriate. Right? This was the view that Gentiles should be circumcised in order to be admitted to the to the Christian Church. And uh, and while Paul doesn't tell us that James personally held that view, mm-hmm. um, that view was certainly associated in popular consciousness with the circle around James. So the position that was associated with James, whether he held it or not personally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was not correct. Was not correct, and the apostles ultimately rejected that. Now now Saint Paul um, clearly polemicized against that perspective, and his book uh, to the Galatians was a direct assault on that, and Paul's view, you know, ultimately became orthodoxy. Uh, But Peter Peter also opposed the position of the Jerusalem Church, even though he backtracked a little bit in Antioch, and Paul had to give him what for. And uh, so, critical scholars—these th- are the kinds that will look at the synoptic gospels and try to figure out, okay, how do we account for the differences between them, and what was going on in the background of those stories that the, you know, the writer of this gospel versus that told the story in a slightly different way. In Matthew's Gospel, we really see Peter come to the fore more than any of the others. I mean, his, his, the presentation of Peter in Matthew's Gospel is where the Catholic Church ultimately grounds the doctrine of the papacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and some critical scholars think, well, wh-, you know, why did Matthew tell the story that way? Why, why the primary role for Peter, w- with with such emphasis on the keys of the kingdom and all this? And uh, And the conclusion is, well, because Peter was associated with what came to be the orthodox position on circumcision. Right? Mm. So you, 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 you make sure you tell the gospel story in Matthew in a way to emphasize Peter's supremacy over the worldwide church because that's the position you're arguing for. You're arguing not only for Peter's authority, but you're arguing for the, the position that you want to take on circumcision based on Peter's authority. And so there's kind of a double whammy there that we know historically Peter was associated with the anti-circumcision party. Uh, and uh, it seems that the writer of Matthew's gospel wanted to shore that up by emphasizing Peter's unique primacy. So whereas the book of Acts doesn't really adjust the question of primacy one way or the other, when Matthew raises the question, he absolutely grounds it in Peter's unique uh, u- unique primacy. The Petrine authority, the power of the keys, the binding and loosing, and all the rest of it.
2: Les, thanks so much for your call from Cincinnati today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Michelle now in Bloomington, Indiana, listening on WOMB. Michelle, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, I'm just looking for clarity regarding the orange posture. I grew up in a parish and surrounding parishes that all held hands and raised them during the Our Father. And I now see more and more threads online, specifically from my hometown where we all did this from people that are just completely offended by the practice. We were taught this by the Church, we didn't make it up on our own, and I'm just wondering why there's such a controversy, and people are just so hung up on on it and just outright judgmental about it, I feel.
4: Sure, yeah. So the reason there's a controversy about it is because in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which is the, the book that explains how the Mass is to be celebrated, the only place where the Oron's posture is prescribed is uh, for the priest— so the only time the Church says someone is to do this, it's with reference to the priest. So it's associated with the the, the clerical part of the Mass. Um, there's nothing in the text that says laity cannot do it, but there's nothing that says they can either. Now, what one priest said about that was he says, there's nowhere in the germ that it says that laity can't stand on their heads during Mass either, right? <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily make it a good idea. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 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 and so I think the controversy emerges over whether or not the laity performing that action is understood to have some kind of sacramental efficacy when it comes to the the consecration right and and it would not be as big a deal i think if there hadn't been a history of abuse at the liturgy where priests that wanted to teach their own theology rather than the priests have specifically invited lay people around the altar at the moment of the consecration and used language altered the the language of the of the consecration for example to imply or to, in some cases to explicitly teach the heretical doctrine that the laity also consecrate the eucharist mm. that's false that's not what happens laity don't consecrate the, the the ordained priest consecrates right but there unfortunately over the last 50 years there have been instances where people have taught the opposite they've taught the heretical doctrine that the laity also consecrate and because People today know that history. They they know that there were liturgical abuses and that liturgical forms were used to teach false doctrine. There's a kind of hypersensitivity to it, so that hey, we better not have the orans posture because people might walk away with the false idea that laity consecrate. So I think that's why it's touchy, right? Um, now you know, in, in practical terms, if uh, you know, if if a couple of uh, you know, old hippies from the 70s in the back of the church raise their hands it's not going to do that much harm right um but if the whole church is doing it and the priest is instructing them to do it and he's downplaying the role that the ordained priest has in the liturgy then that could be
2: problematic is that helpful for you michelle it is thank you you're so welcome thanks for your call don't forget to join us for light of the east radio coming up sunday morning at 11 30 a.m eastern here on ewtn this week father thomas loya invites us to enter into the mystery of the incarnation in order to have the very best christmas check it out light of the east on sunday morning at 11 30 a.m eastern right here on ewtn radio frank is in denver listening on youtube hey frank what's on your mind today sir
3: well, first of all, let me say that um, you guys and this ministry is a sublime gift to the body of Christ.
2: Well, thank and, you. Um, thank you.
3: Anyway, um, I called several weeks, maybe a few months ago, um, asking about whether or not a Zoom Mass with Elements present at a person on a person's table um, is valid. My theory is no, because it's the uh, words of consecration are reproduced. They're not the uh, they're not the words of a priest. They're the words of a device. Um, and then, of course, there's the issue of proximity. And um, the last time I asked this question, I wrote down your answer, Dr. Anders, but I lost it when I um, was speaking to the person that I was debating this with, and I was wondering if you could reiterate what your thoughts sure. are.
4: Sure. So there are there are two different questions we need to address. One of them is the question of the validity of the mass. The other is the question of whether or not the mass, my attendance at that mass, would fulfill my Sunday obligation. All right. So we can we can distinguish those. When it comes to the question of validity. Uh, In order to have a valid Mass, you have to have a validly ordained priest. That's a dogma of the Church. Yep, yep. Without a validly ordained priest, you cannot have a valid Eucharist, you cannot have a valid Mass. So if I repeat the words of consecration at home, along with the priest, you know, over an offering of bread and wine— what would happen is when the priest says the words of consecration over the elements at the church, they're going to be validly consecrated into the body and blood of Christ, and the, the the wonder bread and Welch's grape juice on my counter table is going to stay wonder bread and Welch's, you know, or cheap communion wine or whatever it is. Nothing's going to happen when I say those words, um, and so it's not going to be it's not going to be a valid uh, Eucharist if, if I say it at home. Uh, now, what I'm watching on television will be valid. Right. That, that'll actually be a mass taking place. Like if you watch the mass on EWTN, yeah. you're watching a valid mass. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, but if you perform the same actions at home, nothing's going to happen. Now, uh, on the question of whether or not it fulfills your Sunday obligation uh, to uh, watch the mass at home, either with or without the Wonder Bread, it does not fulfill your Sunday obligation. And it's not because the Wonder Bread on your desk remains Wonder Bread—that's that, not why it's not—that's not why it doesn't fulfill your obligation. It doesn't fulfill your obligation because you're obligated to gather with the body of Christ publicly, together with a validly ordained priest, for the public celebration of the liturgy. That's just what the obligation obliges. You, yeah, you just yeah. have to go to a Mass celebrated by a Catholic priest in person in order to fulfill your obligation. And why would the Church impose that? Like, why— Why not just allow the priest to say Mass and for all of us to sit at home? I mean, I remember during COVID, when none of us could—well, often many of us couldn't go to Mass. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron celebrated Mass privately in his own chapel, and he broadcast it so people could watch. Mm -hmm. Um, And he stopped doing that as soon as it became possible for people to gather in his diocese publicly again, because he didn't want people to think that that was sufficient. He wanted to make sure—he did it as a concession, Mm -hmm. so they'd have something edifying. But as soon as they could gather publicly again, he stopped broadcasting, because he wanted people to gather together, which is what the Church asks us to do. Why is it necessary for us to gather together? Because, yes, we have to honor God privately in our interior lives, but we also have to honor God publicly as the body of Christ. That's that's yeah. what it means to be a Catholic.
2: There you go. Hey, Frank, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Uh, tonight on The World Over, with Raymond Arroyo, Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register, and the UK Spectators Damian Thompson, report on the Pope's eviction of Cardinal Raymond Burke, and the differing reactions to it by some in the media. Also, Archbishop Georg. Gonsvein discusses his new book about his life beside Pope Benedict XVI. Should be a great show, The World Over with Raymond Arroyo, tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN radio and television. Here's a question now from Micah, watching us on YouTube. How I see the order of the church is in a hierarchical structure. Does this represent God's will with order, and can you provide biblical evidence, perhaps John 15, 15?
4: So um, if you're asking me, is the Church hierarchical, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. If you're asking me, and this is maybe what you're going, does the hierarchy of the Church correspond to some sort of order or hierarchy in creation or in reality, right? Are we supposed to see a kind of analogy there? I think
2: that's where he's going.
4: Um, let me tell you, there, there is a book for you, all right? Um, and the title of the book is Celestial Hierarchy. Ah. by, by Dian- pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Oh, my. Right, it's a big, fat mouthful. If you could just yeah. look up Dionysius the Areopagite, you'll get it. Dionysius was a 5th-century Syrian church father who was an enormously influential mystical theologian who had a profound impact on St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, as well as Maximus the Confessor in the whole Eastern tradition as mm-hmm. well. Um, and that's exactly how he sees the liturgy, and it's exactly how he sees the Church hierarchy as reflecting a, an underlying hierarchical and me- metaphysical hierarchy that underlies uh, material reality. In, in, in doing that, um, Dionysius is reflecting a deeply Neoplatonic uh, philosophical strain in, in Christian theology, um, and uh, and you'll find that that same kind of Neoplatonic hierarchical view of reality replicated across Christian theologians. A, a Western theologian that very much takes the same line would be Bonaventure in his uh, itinerarium Mentis in Deum*, the, the the mind's journey into God. Uh, but of course, the whole sum of St. Thomas is structured similarly. So the whole um, the whole um, it's the Latin phrase is exitus reditus. It's the the flowing out and flowing back, mm. f- proceeding from God and then and then flowing back into God, uh, in in uh, eschatological fulfillment, uh, is uh, deeply influenced with the same sort of metaphysical schema. Wayne Hankey, uh, uh, now deceased, f- uh, philosopher from Dalhousie University, published uh, a magisterial treatise on the Neoplatonic uh, philosophical underpinnings of the first part of Thomas's Summa Theologica. Uh, you might look up Wayne Hankey if you really want to get deep into the metaphysics of this.
2: Yeah. Uh, Micah, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. Back to the phones now for George, a first-time caller from Kenner, Louisiana, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, George. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, good afternoon. Uh, Thanks
1: for taking my call. Uh, In today's reading from Romans, uh, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But one believes with the heart, and so, is just, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so he is saved." And what, what comes to my mind, I'm Catholic, and what comes to my mind, a couple of my uh, siblings have left the Church, and they've mentioned this to me, these, these verses before, not in a contentious way, but it, it seems to me like their understanding of this is, it comes to a full stop, not really understanding, uh, you know that the Bible, the Scripture, comes to us in in a certain context. that's the whole thing, and I'm just wondering how do they understand this? Sure. So that
4: absolutely, I can help you with that. So this is, of course, the the single most controverted issue between Protestants and Catholics is the nature of the doctrine of justification and how we're made right with God. This is why there was a Reformation. Uh, if it wasn't for this doctrine, Luther Luther wouldn't have left the Church. Uh, he invented the doctrine, by the way, this idea of salvation by faith alone. Before Luther, for 1,500 years, nowhere in the world did you ever find this idea, the idea that you could be saved by faith alone just by professing faith with your mouth, that that was sufficient to save you. No Christian believed that for 1,500 years anywhere throughout the world, East, West, Latin, Greek, Syriac, Coptic, you name it, nobody which really undermines the claim that that's the plain teaching in the Bible. And it's kind of astonishing, because as you mentioned, this and other verses fall within a context, and if you look at the scriptural teaching from Genesis to Revelation— um, the, the overwhelming—I mean, we're talking 99.9% of every Scripture text on the question of God being saved ties our salvation directly to the contents of our moral life. I mean, Jesus Christ himself, when he talks about our judgment on the last day, doesn't say anything about being justified because we've confessed with our mouth. In fact, he explicitly repudiates that teaching and says, many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Well, here, your, your friends are saying, all we got to do is say, Lord, Lord, and we're saved. Jesus Christ says the opposite. That's Matthew right. chapter 25 says, a lot of people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, skedaddle, I don't know you. Yep, okay. Yep. Um, so here's the problem with their interpretation of Romans. What does it mean to be justified, and what's the significance of saying, Lord, Lord? All right. What Paul is talking about here, and you have you start at chapter 1 of Romans, and read all the way to the end, what Paul's talking about is uh, faith as a way of being accounted a member of God's covenant family, as opposed to following the Mosaic law as the criteria of being counted as a member of God's covenant family. See, the Jewish position was, if you keep the law of Moses, it makes you a real Jew. And, and Paul's position was, the law was for a time, and we can be members of the covenant of Abraham simply by faith in Christ. So there's a, there's a faith aloneness to that, uh-huh. but it doesn't, it's not the faith that gets you to heaven. Yeah, faith is what constitutes you a member of Christ's body. But what do you get for your pains in being a member of Christ's body? What's the benefit of being a member of Christ's body? It's not that you're guaranteed the life of heaven. According to St. Paul, what happens when you become a member of Christ's body is that you die and are reborn with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is poured into your heart, the love of God is poured into your heart, Mm. and enables you to keep the moral content of the law. So in Romans chapter 2, for example, verse 13, Paul says explicitly, it's not those who hear the law, it's those who obey the law who be declared righteous. Not those who say, Lord, Lord. It's those who, in fact, obey the law, who will be declared righteous. But disobedience is not possible to us in the natural. It's not possible to us in the flesh. Rather, God has to change our hearts. And this is what he says in Romans 2, verses 25 to 29, that that through the circumcision of our hearts, when the Spirit is given to us, then we become capable of keeping what Paul calls the righteous requirements of the law. Hmm. He's not worried about circumcision and the laws of Kashrut and what kind of clothes you wear. He's worried about the, the, the substance of the law, things like love and justice and mercy and faithfulness, the kinds of things that Jesus taught, that comes to us through the gift of the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, then you've fully met the demands of the law. That's exactly what he says in Romans 2 and Romans 8. But let's say you have faith alone, and you've been given the gift of the Spirit, but you don't keep in step with it, that you don't actually cooperate with grace. Can you be assured of your salvation? Well, Paul says no. He says in, in Galatians chapter 5 that if you go back to fornication and adultery and drunkenness and factions and rivalry and disobedience to parents and things of that sort, it, it, he says explicitly, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this to believers who have received the Spirit. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you go back there. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 is even more stark. It says, I'm going to find the passage and I'm going to read it to you here. Uh, 2 Peter says, da-dum, 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 if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? So he's talking about people who have gotten out of the world by knowing Christ. All right? Um, And are again entangled in it and overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Wow. So, I mean, the the, the plain teaching of Scripture is that faith saves— Because faith is the medium that that, uh, obtains for us the renovating gift of the Spirit, enabling us to transform our moral lives. But that comes with the demand that we cooperate with that grace and, in fact, change our character. Failure to do so means, according to Peter, according to Paul, that we are worse off than we otherwise would have been. It's Mm. literally better not to become a Christian, not to get baptized, not to become a Catholic. Than to do so and make no effort to reform your moral life.
2: Mm, Wow. George, thanks so much for your call. Interesting question here from Jay, uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Is there a place in Christianity for a rather introverted person who prefers solitude and really doesn't like being around most other people? Hot dog, yeah. Ever heard of a hermit? There you go.
4: Oh, yeah, man. Hermits are are hot stuff there right. are so I, I had the, the, the pleasure of visiting a rather celebrated Catholic author a while back. I won't share his name on this okay. because maybe he wouldn't want me to but uh, anyway he and his family were constructing a hermitage in the backyard of their house and I said to this fellow I said, oh that's pretty neat. who's gonna stay in the hermitage?" The answer was we don't know yet God hadn't sent us our hermit Wow <laughs> but they were getting ready for one, right um, And uh, you know we have a we have a Benedictine monastery, um, in my own diocese, mm. and uh, they mm. have a hermitage there. We have, they have a, one of the monks lives a hermetic life. and yeah. I mean, it's, it's very common in Christian history to, to take up being a hermit as a particular charism or vocation within the Church. In fact, hermits were so highly valued in the Middle Ages, uh, along with the veneration of their relics when they died— that uh, medieval Catholics used to have to post guard around ailing hermits, right? Really? You know, yeah. When they when they were starting to you know get a little bit little green around the gills, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. they would post guard for fear that if their hermit died in the middle of the night, the guys in the town one one town over would come over and steal his relics. Oh, and they're rude. like, hey, let, hands off! He's our hermit. That's We, right. we get
2: his relics when he <laughs> dies. Get, get out of here, you interlopers! That's great, Jay. Thanks so much for your question today. Christians watching us on YouTube as well. Christian says, my Christian friends have said, we Catholics have added more books to the Bible. How do I answer? How do they know what books belong in the Bible? How do they know?
5: How do
4: they know? How do they know? All right. There's only one way you can know what books belong in the Bible. Sacred tradition tells you. That's it. That's the only way you can know. Yeah. All right. That's how Protestants know. I mean, when I was a Protestant, how did I know what books belong in the Bible? My mother handed me a Bible and said, here, this is the Word of God. That's what you call tradition. It was handed to me. Right. I accepted it on authority. Did Did God whisper in my ear and say, hey, Anders, here's a list of 66 books. Make sure you listen to them. No. I got it from my mother, my father, my pastor, my Presbyterian tradition. That's where I learned what books But note, Protestants don't think that tradition is an independent authority. So they're inconsistent. They, they rely on tradition for their list of biblical books, but then they deny the authority of tradition. Catholics are just intellectually honest about this. We believe that tradition is a divine authority, and it's from tradition that we know the content of the biblical books. So, yes, do Catholics have a different canon of the Bible from Protestants? Absolutely. And we appeal to sacred tradition and the teaching authority of the Church for that canon. To what do they appeal for theirs? Yeah. Now, there, there is no principal Protestant answer to that question. I've read books and books by Protestants trying to justify their belief in the biblical canon that boil down to— I mean, this is a caricature, but it boils down to, God told me. Mm. Right? Um, well, I'm sorry, that's that that, that that's no—claims p- to subjective religious experience are no b- basis for an objective criterion of uh, of ecclesial canonicity.
2: The better question might be, well, why did y'all take X number of books out? They took them out. We didn't stick them out. Exactly. Christian, thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube. Also, Jay, what a great question about hermits. I remember there was a hermitage in Minnesota when we lived in Minnesota, and it was like— 10 little, almost like outhouses, they were very small, uh, but they were very isolated. What a life that would be. Wow. Not for
4: me, not for
2: me. Well, well not for, for me for either, it's but uh, I, I admire those that can, that can pull that off. Well, I, I admire people who live their vocation with charity, whatever that vocation might be. Amen. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday. Be sure to join us tomorrow at the same time, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live broadcast, 11 p.m for the Encore, and that's uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast. Charles will post that for you in the next hour or so at EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for the word podcast. On behalf of Dr. David Andrews, I'm Tom Price. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.